Thank you. My name is Mickey and I'm an alcoholic. I, I want to say some thank yous to, uh, to at least express my gratitude for your beautiful hospitality. Uh, I want to thank Doug and Jeannie for having me in their home and making me feel so welcome. I want to thank the committee for uh, most unexpectedly bringing me back. I, I thought I blew that last talk completely. So, uh, <clears throat> And I want to thank you for uh, being my family. I'm not going to make this thing without a, a wet eye and what you do is your business. But there's no way I can express my gratitude for belonging to the family of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. Um, how, how do you say thank you for your life? How do you say thank you for understanding me when I had absolutely no clue? How can you express your gratitude for getting these tools, these tools that reach places in me that I, I didn't know existed and I didn't know needed attention. Um, one of the ways is to get on that silver coffin and fly to another city and stand up at a podium and tell the truth. I was reminded of that just before I walked up here. I was going to spin a good one, but we're not going to do that. And before I forget, I am, uh, my home group is the Denver Thursday Night Group in Denver. Um, we meet on uh, at 8 o'clock at 17th and Sherman in the First Presbyterian Church. And it, it's a closed meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and if you're ever through Denver, please come and be with us. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous for two weeks of sobriety. I thought if I could get two weeks... Or I didn't hurt like that. Or I wasn't that sick. I would be very grateful to you. And I would go back out and get on that train again and drink. And I didn't think that because I was thirsty. There was nothing in a bottle of alcohol I wanted ever again in my life. But I'd been drinking since I was four years old. And I was 27. And it was over. I knew that there was no way on the face of this big blue marble that I would ever stop drinking alcohol. So I'll take my two weeks just so I can heal up and I'll start drinking again. And on February 12th, um, I celebrated 29 years of sobriety. <clears throat> it's... um what I brought to this party was being broken, uh, smoked. I was given a window of opportunity by God, by a God I didn't recognize and a God that I did not acknowledge to get out of this deal. And I took the opportunity and I got out. Um, there's so much I have to say to you. Um, we're just going to wend our way through it. It doesn't say in the big book that Alcoholics Anonymous is sponsorship. It doesn't say in the big book that Alcoholics Anonymous is meetings. It says in the big book that Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life. It includes all of that. 
but it's a way of life. It's a way of responding to life. My way of responding to life before I got here was to um, stand in the middle of the road and take it on and then run like hell. It says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our problems. Selfishness and self-centeredness. It doesn't say that the bottle is the root of our problems. It says that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our problems. So I want to tell you that, um, you know, we're, we're here to uh, share our experience, strength, and hope. And, and it doesn't say our opinions, but you're going to get them anyway because it's my hour. <laughs> and here comes the first one. You're absolutely free to discard any of these. I'll try to flag them for you. You'll spot them. First one is that I believe I was born alcoholic. I've never met anybody that can tell me how much booze you have to drink to catch this disease. If you drink a whole lot, will you become alcoholic? Nobody's ever been able to show me that that's the truth. Uh, if you abstain from drinking, do you not have alcoholism? I've found enough holes in that one through the years to know that that's not true. So I believe that I was born with this disease. I was the lucky member of my family who got this one. I have two older brothers and they are not alcoholic. My parents were not alcoholic. Fickle finger of fate picked me and I got alcoholism. What it looked like in my life, and I told you I drank from the time I was four. Um, my father got a promotion and they filled me full of champagne and watched me stagger around the floor and miss the wastebasket with the Kleenex and isn't it cute? And I never stopped. I began to steal it from my parents and it never stopped. What did it look like past the drinking? And, and I would, wouldn't it be wonderful in a way if we could say that every screwball thing we ever did in our lives, we did drunk. And it's because of that demon rum. That's why I did that. But you see, we're not drunk 24 hours a day. And at the young age that I was, I certainly wasn't. So what's wrong with Mickey? I would go into school and the teacher would tell me to do something. And I would stand up in the middle of the class and tell the teacher what I thought of her. You may want to do that once. But you don't want to make a habit of it. And I did. I was standing in the middle of the road waiting for the 18-wheeler to hit me. I was kicked out of every school I went to. And, and it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that we alcoholics are undisciplined people. And uh, I found a box of my um, report cards from the time I was a little boy. And, and there were A's on those report cards. There was nothing wrong with my mind. But if you flip the report card over, <laughs> Mickey is a discipline problem. And 
when I got kicked out of the schools, it wasn't, we need a parent-teacher conference. It was, get the hints. <laughs> we absolutely don't need you in this school ever again. I was kind of the last kid you wanted to see move into your neighborhood unless you were also going 99 miles an hour with your hair on fire and then we were going to do fine. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, this man, you know, the the reason I cry so much at the podium is because I have never gotten over the kindness that's been shown me. Because it was so hard, and I couldn't get it straight. And I came here, and you didn't throw me out. And you started to teach me how to stay on the planet. So here's the kind of lessons I got. Nikki, brand new in AA. If you will take the 88 keys of the piano keyboard to represent the full range of human emotions, You have two. And I guess the two I had were rage and excitement. That's what I had. Compassion and all the rest of those are sort of the middle. Those are maybe the sharps and flats. I didn't have any of that. And I burned my way through life like that. It was like I was born with a spotlight shining on me and it cast a narrow glow at my feet. And if you stood close to that spotlight and I could see you in the glow, then I would pay attention to you. But you had to stand awful close and you had to mean it. And usually it was for no good. We were going to stand close to each other for no good. But the important person in the picture was the one in the spotlight. And I was just in a used bookstore a couple of weeks ago and I looked up on the shelf and there was a book by Emil Ludwig on that shelf. And it was the first time in my life I ever identified with anyone else. And it was a biography of Napoleon. And I'm serious about this. I was in the eighth grade and I read about Napoleon Bonaparte. And he was this little Corsican kid. And he uh, was a misfit And he was bright, and he sat back and he looked at the world and he said, I think I'll own it. (laughs) He got closer than I did, I'll promise you that one. But I thought, that's it. I'm a genius, and nobody knows it yet. (laughs) But I'll come out of this deal, man, and I'm going to be, look out world, here we go, You know, and it's this blooming, latent genius. That was when I was elected the president of my eighth grade class. And I was a new kid in town, and I was in that fabulous town that's been mentioned earlier, I believe, as Glenda Lee mentioned it, Rapid City, South Dakota. I had just moved to Rapid City, and I was a new kid in town, and they elected me class president. And uh, the um, teacher impeached me. <laughs> Which I didn't think was due process in any way, shape, or form. 
she didn't elect me after all, you know, and I was, but when you pull the stunts that I did, then you deserve to be impeached. Want to know what I did? I don't think I'll ever grow up. But anyway, <laughs> I'd grown up in Europe, and uh, I can remember being in the flea market in Paris. Um, let's see, I got to Europe about seven years after the Second World War ended. And uh, I remember being in the flea market in Paris. It looked like the garment district in New York. There were racks of clothes being moved all over the place. and But what they were is German military... Nazi-era uniforms, because they weren't doing the people who had served Germany in that capacity any good. You weren't going to step out of your house in that uniform ever again. All their decorations, all their swords, their knives, their hats, helmets, the whole business. That's what the flea market in Paris, one section of it, looked like. And I was growing up across the battlefields of World War II, and I had a sense of history, and that fascinated me. And uh, <clears throat> so, we fast forward in time, and it's now the eighth grade in the United States of America, and it's show and tell time in a Catholic elementary school. <laughs> and I want to bring my stuff to show and tell. All this Nazi gear that I bought. And they weren't having it. Can you imagine? So one Saturday night, you know, nurses used to wear white shoes exclusively and to polish those shoes they had shoe polish in a liquid form with a cotton dauber on the end. And I got my white shoe polish and I put swastikas in the Catholic school windows this big. And I didn't tell you I was brilliant. I just, I was genius, budding genius. And on Monday morning, I got caught by ratting myself out. So while the eighth grade class graduated together, uh, I was forbidden to be anywhere near them. So I stood across the street in a vinyl motorcycle jacket. Love to tell you it was leather, but. Smoking old gold cigarettes and drinking grain belt beer into hell with you. I'm cool and you're not. Mind you, you're graduating and I'm not. <laughs> I want to tell you also at that time, um, I've had occasion since in Alcoholics Anonymous to go back to Rapid City and, and to speak on the Pine Ridge Reservation for which I'm very grateful and, uh, I got a chance to, to go back to the cathedral I'm about to tell you about and see how small it was. God, when I was in the eighth grade, that cathedral looked huge, but I got bigger. I walked into that cathedral one afternoon by myself, and I walked up in front of the altar, and I just stood there. And Like Bill Wilson had that experience in England, I, I stood there in that church, and I knew there was a God. I knew there was a God. But when you have alcoholism, it's very compelling. It it kills most of us. And uh and that feeling was fleeting and soon lost, and I got back on the train 
But I knew it for a minute. I knew there was a God. Speaking of killing most of us, I've got to throw out some mother-in-law statistics that I carry in my kit bag. I was, I'd carried a certain number, but I want to increase the number actually. Uh, talking with a math major and he sat down and did some hoodoo and came up with this, but I used to say one in 35 alcoholics, I was told, makes it to AA. But it's really more like one in 50. One in 50 alcoholics makes it to AA. Of those of us who actually walk through the doors, 50% of us go back out. Total number of recovery for us is then that half that'll come back. And if my math isn't screwed up, which I wouldn't be at all surprised, that's a 75% recovery record. And it's a, there's an inclination on our parts to to say, ain't that something? Boy, we got. Let's say, let's just throw it out as three million members of Alcoholics Anonymous in the world. Let's just use that. I'm making that up, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? And uh, I guess that's uh, less than 50% of the population of New York City. Maybe a third of it. Out of the world. And we take it as common currency when we walk into an AA meeting and there's another human being sitting there sober. The odds against our survival are fierce. This is why we clap when somebody says they have one day or they have 40 some odd years. It's by dint of survival. And there aren't many of us who actually even get here. So the odds that are stacked against us are fierce. And even if we're sitting in these rooms, what are we to do about it? So hard for us to hear. It's so hard for us to listen. And it's a miracle that anything gets through that concrete bunker that I carry on my shoulders. Proof against all argument. Got the answers before I hear the questions. When you're geared that way to survive from this thing, which is whispering in my ear every day, I don't exist. I'm not here. You're okay, baby. It's not true. Alcoholism does exist. One of the things that we're going to talk about during the time I'm up here is the disease of alcoholism. So in any event, I went through my life like that and I had two sides of me. One of them was a vandal and the other side was an altar boy. And I'm not kidding. I believe absolutely in both of them. And if you can't hear that, you may not have the same disease I do. I was high-minded and low-minded and dedicated to both. Like a man told me one time in a meeting, he said, Mickey, I'm half horse's ass and half child of God, and I never know which one's going to show up. <clears throat> and I went through life like that, and I had the relationship with alcohol that the big book describes, progressive. They told me that alcoholism was like an elevator going down. You can get off on any floor you want, but that elevator will always go down. And I started out being able to drink just a little and tolerate it just a little. And ended up drinking a whole bunch and tolerating it a bunch. And by the time I was done drinking, it got tricky. You know what I'm saying is it's like one time I'd sit down and drink a case of beer and couldn't get anywhere. Next time I'd have two glasses of wine and I would be debilitated. And when your best friend is treating you like that, 
It's hard to make moves in life. It's hard to keep living. By the time I finished drinking, my hands were all screwed up. I'd wake up in the morning and my hands were all screwed up. And I talked to a friend of mine and I said, man, what's wrong with my hands? He says, it's the booze, dummy. And I thought, how curious. How can alcohol do this to your hands? Like I'm from Mars or something. Never heard of this disease. Never heard of this disease. Grew up with it all my life. Never heard of it. I'm told that in the movie The Days of Wine and Roses, which I saw in the theater when it came out, AA's in there. I had no clue. I could tell you where Jack Lemon hid the booze in the greenhouse, but I had no recollection that Alcoholics Anonymous was in that movie. Signed, sealed, and delivered for death. And I didn't die. So I went on through life like that. Nothing wrong with the brain. Something wrong with the spirit. Can't sit in the classroom. One time I cut school and sat in a tree for ten days. I didn't have any place to go. Just couldn't sit in that classroom. All that education was just blowing by me. Anyway, I did get through high school. And I gotta tell you, I had a, I had a senior English nun who watched me coming for three years. And she grabbed me right before I, we started our senior year and she sat me down in a room, just the two of us. And she said, Mickey, I want to ask you a question. She said, what do other people think of you? God, I was floored. This is the first time anybody had ever asked me to be objective about anything. What do other people think of you? I don't know what I answered, but I was fascinated with the fact that somebody had asked me a question I couldn't answer. And it kept grinding in my mind. And she would have me in her class. And no matter what stupid thing I said in that class, she would say, do a paper on it. And I would present the paper to the class. God only knows what I must have. She loved me. That nun loved me. And I could tell it. And she wasn't afraid of me. And you know, it occurred to me that I'd gone all over the United States for years and years telling people about this wonderful woman, this teacher of mine, who loved me and helped me so much. And I had never told her. And I looked her up. And I found her, and I sat across the desk from her, and I told her how much I loved her and what she had meant to me. And if you ever have anybody, have had anybody in your life that has really counted, please don't miss the opportunity to do that. You can't imagine the light that came on in that room. I made it out of there, and I made it into college, and I graduated from college. I did not graduate from college without being thrown in jail. (laughs) I did not graduate from college without being thrown in the drunk tank. But I did graduate from college. And I ran, my family ran out of money, and I ran out of money, and the Dean of Arts and Sciences gave me a $100 music scholarship so I could go through the registration line so I could get my books in my senior year. And I went ahead and finished college, and I got a bit of a loan, and I went through and I got my college degree. And I'd wanted to be a uh, singer, and I went out and I was a singer. I was a folk singer, and I was in my first professional engagement, singing in a bar in downtown Denver, and I met the hostess at the bar across the hall. And uh, she introduced herself, and 
I thought she said her name was Murray. And I thought, God, a woman named Murray. i got to find out about this. Her name is Marie. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she was drunk and I was sober. And uh, I'm telling you the truth when I say I looked at her and I thought to myself, I am never going to let her go. And three months later, we were married and we're still married today. Yeah. And we began to do this deal. Uh, I was married to Marie, um, so, so her father told her, there's a few things that I think that are essential for you, for the happiness in your life. Never marry an alcoholic. Never marry a Roman Catholic. And never get pregnant before you get married. Three out of three ain't so bad, huh? And we named our daughter Amy um, because she was our friend. And when Marie told me, now, the kindness of God is unbelievable. As we, You don't need to tell a room full of people like us that. But I asked my wife to marry me the night before she found out she was pregnant. That counts. <laughs> and when she told me she was pregnant, I thought the buttons were going to pop off my shirt. I was so proud. I, I wasn't frightened. I was excited. <clears throat> um, and I, I've heard people put together their sane and sound sex ideal for who they're going to be with and in their lives and doing their step work and so on and so on. I would have never put down, I want to marry an atheist. And I did marry an atheist. I didn't marry a passive atheist. She didn't come from a passive atheistic family. She came from a drum-banging, get-down, atheist family. She was more agnostic than atheist, but we had that thing. We had all this going for us, you know. And we headed off into life. And I was a, I was a good singer. I think I made 75 bucks one month. And we lived in a place, a room above somebody's, in somebody's home upstairs. And they raised the rent 10 bucks and we moved. It was like that. One of our managers was Joe Lewis's son, the boxer. And we lived in Joe Lewis's basement while Joe Lewis was the greeter at, at uh, Caesar's Palace or wherever he was in Vegas. And I asked Joe Lewis's son, just as an aside, just storytelling, one time I said, does your father have a scrapbook that I can see? Well, Joe Lewis is one of the most famous Americans ever. Went down in that basement. There were 75 leather-bound volumes along with his bronze boxing shoes down there. And when Joe Lewis's current wife found out we were living in the basement, that there were two white people living in the basement of Joe Lewis's <laughs> house while he was away in Vegas, we were kicked out of there so fast. 
and Joe Lewis's son came to live in our home with my mother, who was from Memphis, Tennessee, from the old days. And he was made welcome, and I was very proud. I wasn't proud of getting kicked out of the house, and I wasn't proud of moving home, but I was proud of the reception that my mother gave us. We lived that way for three years, and uh, I used to go to the mental health outreach of the Denver General Hospital System. You could go for free. And I remember I got me a psychologist. I was coming unwrapped like an old sock. And I sat down with the psychologist and we talked. She never asked me about my drinking. Never asked me about my drinking. And I'd gone in to see her for a few, I don't know, how many periods of time. And I asked her, I said, well, how am I doing? I mean, you know, you're in there seeing somebody. You want to know how it's going. She said, do you want me to tell you? I said, sure. She said, Mickey, you are the most negative human being I have ever met in my life. She said, I don't see how it's possible for you to be walking around the streets out there. Whoops, time's up. We'll see you next week. (laughs) Now, when you can't make five minutes, next week seems like an eternity. And why don't you take a few of these Valium and this kind of stuff, and that'll kind of level you out, and then you try to fix your hangovers with Valium and booze, and it just gets worse. My last drunk is nothing spectacular. I had one glass of beer. I'd gone, well, I had one glass of beer. I went over, I'd, I'd been dry for about a week. I was, I was tired. I was 27 years old. I'd been hospitalized the year before with a suspected heart attack. I was not doing well. And I was worn out and I, um, I had one glass of beer. We invited some people's house and the beer looked good. And I had one glass of beer and I went two more weeks and I knew I couldn't stay sober without help. And I had leaned on priests and I'd leaned on family and I'd leaned on psych- the psychologist and I leaned on everybody I could and I had no place else to go. And I called you guys because you had alcohol in your name. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous at 10 o'clock one night. And I said, do you have any meetings? I called the York Street Club in Denver. Some of us call it the Mother House. At 1311 York Street. And I said, do you have any meetings that I could come to? And the guy said, what's the problem? And I said, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, congratulations which I thought was pretty bizarre. I just told him I was a moral leper and <laughs> congratulations. And, and and he said, why don't you come down here and we'll talk with you a little bit tonight. And I said, I'm with my daughter and I can't. And he said, would you like somebody to come talk to you? And I said, yes, I would. And I went around very busily tidying up our house. I don't want him to think I'm a drunk or anything. And <laughs> my wife was not there. She'd gone out to a class. And just before they got there, my wife came home. And I said, I've called Alcoholics Anonymous. My wife, incidentally, is not an alcoholic. She's been in the Al-Anon family program for 29 years. And um, she came home, and I told her that I'd called AA, and she said, "Should I? can I stay when they come and talk to you? And I said, I don't know. I said, well, ask them. So, cause you know, you don't get much of a blueprint for your own 12 step. You're just on your own there. And 
And the guy came, these two men came to the door. And I said, you know, come on in. I said, uh, my wife's not alcoholic. Can she stay? And the guy looks at her and says, can you be honest? And she said, yes. And I vouched for her. And And he looks at my wife and he says, I want you to know that you are just as sick as he is. And the 12th step started there. And they began to describe to us in my in our living room a disease called alcoholism. And if you have this disease, these are the kinds of things that will happen to you if they haven't already. Here's the nature of it and so on and so on. Somebody was talking about the language of the heart. Bob was talking about the language of the heart. This guy had come out of a jail in Tennessee, accused of the murder of his wife. And he didn't know if he'd done it or not. Blood in the place, hell of an argument. He doesn't know if he's killed his wife or not. See, I didn't do that. But there was something about what he was talking about that reached my heart. And I'm thinking to myself, God, I hope I have this disease. Because it's a step up. It's a step up from where I've been. If I got this thing, you can get well from alcoholism. You can't get well from what I had. You can go down to that person's office and you can get the Valium and you're going to be there the rest of your life coming unwrapped. So he left our home and I was excited. And I was going to work the next day and I was losing that job, of course. And I had a breakfast meeting with my boss, and my boss was a telephone freak. And uh, I said, sat down at the table out by the airport at this restaurant, and I said, Bill, I want you to know that I found out I'm an alcoholic, and I'm going to my first AA meeting today. And he looked at me, and he didn't say a word, and he got up, and he left the table. And I thought, man, I thought I was on my way. You know, this was all going to be great, and the first thing I've done is gotten myself fired. Well, he picked that moment in history to go make a telephone call. So he came back and he sat down at the table and he looked at me and he didn't say a word and he reached in the breast coat pocket and he pulled out a 24-hour-a-day book. And I was sitting there with a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and it was God saying, come on in, kid, the water's fine. And I went to my first meeting that day and a man stuck out his hand and he said something to me after that meeting that I've never forgotten. He put his hand out and he said, welcome home. So if you are new, just joining us on the road to happy destiny and sobriety and safety, welcome home. And they gave us some advice. You're not going to be able to fix your marriage. You've been busy pulling it down day after day after day. So we want you to go to separate neutral corners. Marie, you work your program. Mickey, you work your program. And uh, we'll see what happens with your marriage. I really wanted to be married to that woman. But I didn't know how to do it. And they told me if I would put alcoholism and recovery from it, number one, God would take care of the rest. Uh, I'm going to give you probably not. It'll be a pretty homespun example of what that means. But I believed them because I was out of any place else to go. 
So I wanted to make contact with my daughter one day, and she was in busy playing. It's a three-year-old doing whatever she's doing, and she's too busy for me, and that's fine. And so I went into the kitchen to make contact with my wife. And she was baking, and she was busy. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll go upstairs, and I put on the tape machine, and I put on an AA tape, and I started listening to it. I was putting alcoholism and recovery from it, number one. And I felt these little arms go around my waist. And there sat my daughter that was too busy to be with me. And my wife showed up a few minutes later with fresh-baked cookies. And the family that I couldn't make contact with was sitting in the room with me. And I hadn't done anything but put alcoholism and recovery from it, number one. And God took care of me. I've talked with my wife probably three times already today. She's not only my best friend, but she is my guide. We used to go through at weddings, you know, she would always go through the line before me and taste everything. This has got booze in it. Don't eat that. And it would go like that. (laughs) And now most of the time I will ask her what's going on in life. How do I do this? And she continues to teach me and continues to tell me she is the greatest treasure I've ever been given, short of my sobriety. Al-Anon, I've got to do my commercial for Al-Anon, not that you need mine, but you're going to get it. (laughs) Al-Anon saved our marriage so many times I can't tell you. Because, you know, when when you're out of responses to life, you can just get mean. And if you're going to bring mean on, let's start it with the wife. So I'd get that mean streak going and I'd bring it into the kitchen. And there she'd be and she'd see me coming. And I would start it and I'd say, don't you detach, damn it, boom, too late, she's already gone. (laughs) (laughs) And we'd get to have a marriage for one more day. (laughs) And I had an epiphany one time. Um, we went to a conference early on in my sobriety and Anne Marie's walk in Al-Anon. And I watched her walk into this hotel and start to manage. And I mean, she was a model of management. God, she was a flurry of activity. And I watched this and I thought, man, what is she doing? And we we came out afterwards and we were standing outside and I said, Marie, I get it. She said, what? I said, you're sick. It wasn't an insult. I didn't mean it that way. I called my wife St. Marie. You can appreciate this. I didn't know she was sick. I didn't know that she had that thing running in her that would drive her down the road. And I got it that she's sick. The other thing that happened is because of you and Al-Anon and because of that program, our program, One day we were out with our daughter in the park and my wife turned to me and she says, Mickey, I want you to know something. And she has that tone. I want you to know that God comes before you do. I was instantly insulted. And I trusted her from that moment forward. I absolutely trusted her from that moment forward. If she was willing to put God first, I knew we had a chance. Before I forget, there's a man here actually that I 
sponsored in Denver, I was so surprised and delighted to see he and his wife walk through the door. And that's Casper and Alicia, and I'm so glad you're here. Casper told me before I came up here, tell the truth. At uh, 23 years sober, I lost uh, my business, which I have shared with you here before. I lost my business. I lost my professional status. I lost my home. And I damn near lost my life. I was 23 years sober. If you think this is alcoholism, don't ever turn your back on this deal. Don't ever turn your back on it. Don't stop working your program and rest on your laurels because I promise you, as God is my guide and my help, you're asking for something to sneak up behind you that you don't want behind you. And I wouldn't have told you at that time that I was attached so deeply to my prestige and my money and my um, profession. I was in advertising and uh, I had my own ad agency. And I lost it. And I almost lost me. And I want to tell you about a night where I went to hell. I got, I was at this point, I had an office, if you want to call it that, rent free in a terrible part of Denver and the phone never rang. And I went there and I sat and it never rang. I had nothing to do. And one evening I got onto the floor of this place, it, it had as close to AstroTurf for carpet as you can get. And I got onto that floor and I could not get up. I didn't call my wife. I couldn't. I was just paralyzed and I was going out. And uh, And the question was, shall I kill myself now or five minutes from now? Shall I open my veins now or five minutes from now? And I didn't want to make a mess on the rug that someone had to clean up. So I knew I was going to have to get outside so I could die out there. And I knew it was going to be cold. And I kept thinking about how cold it's going to be. Shall I kill myself now or five minutes from now? That went on for four hours. I guess that's probably the longest four hours of my life. Hell, by definition, is the absence of God. And after four hours of that, I couldn't do it. And I actually fell asleep finally. And when I came up the next morning, I called a woman in Minneapolis that I had met on the road, speaking in Minneapolis, actually in St. Cloud. And I called her to get the number of a guy in St. Paul that she was very, very high on. I wanted to get his number because I thought maybe he could help me. It just occurred to me that way. And this lady started talking to me, and I told her what was going on. And uh, she was saying things that helped me a great deal. And I asked her to be my sponsor that morning. And I had her for my sponsor for four years. And she saved my life, and I hung on her voice. 
for the lifeline it was. And I had to start my life and my program over. And uh, and I just knew that if uh, eventually that if I would do this thing, things would turn around and they would be terrific. And uh, so I uh, I shared with you last time some of that, and uh, I got to live and I got to come back. And uh, I sense now I have a, a male sponsor, and he's in Denver, and he's a terrific guy, and he helps me do this. I just knew things were going to turn around, you know. Well, I'm here to give you your update. They never did. I'm alive and I am sober, but I never got that economic turnaround that I looked for. I was starting to do temp work then and I am doing temp work now. I flatlined somewhere in there and... uh I hang on to God every day. And uh, I'm doing a job. I actually work in a pharmacy. And I'm doing a job that's the lowest job in that pharmacy. I do a job nobody else wants to do. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm grateful to have income coming into our home. There's a line in the 12 and 12 that says, Humble labor cheerfully rendered. And I try. But some days it absolutely eats my lunch. And the idea of coming here and telling you five years later that that's what's going on, that was the invitation I got. Ate my lunch. But Casper said, tell the truth. And this is the truth. My home, I have a home because my mother died and left us a home. So we have a roof over our heads. My wife works and we have income coming in. And actually, we're doing pretty well. Um, Our economic circumstances are much diminished. I had an eight-bedroom home. I had a swimming pool. I had a courtyard and a workshop and a beautiful Victorian home and all that and a bag of chips. And what I've got now... is this training class with my higher power. You are either going to walk this, Mickey, or you're going to cease to exist. You're either going to practice the principles in this program and get out of yourself long enough to survive, or you're going to die behind this, brother. Your choice. Good morning. No one is cruel to me. No one is unkind to me. This is an internal job. I have work to do. I serve my higher power. I serve my higher power where I'm put. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz, huh? (laughs) It's not about material. We know it's not about material. But it is about the truth and we owe each other that. When I got up at 3 o'clock this morning with the woogies, I appealed to my higher power, please show me the truth. Let me live in the truth. Let me come and walk in the truth this day. And I put my forehead on the floor. And I went back to work. 
And I grabbed Tom at lunchtime and I hung on to his coattail and I told him how scared I was. This is just about how I felt when I talked here last time. And I thought I blew that and I don't know what the heck I'm doing up here, but Alcoholics Anonymous is my life. I have no place else to go. I want to tell you about three people, and then I, I'm getting my orders to shut up and sit down, and I'm about to do that. They are my children. I have a daughter in Alcoholics Anonymous. My daughter is a beautiful woman in so many ways. And I want to tell you something she did. It's like the big book says half measures availed us, not half, but nothing. You can, you can fake it till you make it for a while, but sooner or later, baby, you're going to have to come on in. My daughter had four years of sobriety and couldn't find her first step. She could not, you know what I mean? It says we had to admit to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic, and she couldn't find that. And she talked with her sponsor, and she read her big book, and she tried everything. She wrote inventory. She faced east. She did whatever she could do. And she still couldn't contact it. And it says, when all else fails, step over to the nearest bar room and drink. And so she tried the Marty Man test. She didn't drink because she was thirsty. She drank because she spiritually needed to know, or absolutely positive, is I is or is I ain't an alcoholic. And she drank under her sponsor's supervision. She drank two drinks a day. For, well, she was setting out on the 30 days, two drinks a day, no more and no less. And she got about two weeks into that and found the truth that she is indeed alcoholic and she's a member in good standing by the grace of God and dint of hard work in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. She is a sober and safe member of our fellowship. i got to tell you how she met her husband. I work with a lot of people. I'm graced with a lot of people. And I work with a lot of younger men, single from time to time. And I will inevitably ask them, I, we talk about dating and we talk about the purpose of dating and we talk about women and we talk about all that. And I will ask them, I wonder where God has the lady that's for you. I wonder where she is tonight. I wonder what she's doing. And little, by, little did I know with one of these men that she was upstairs. <laughs> and that man married my daughter. And he is a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but I heard his fifth step before he did it. <laughs> I didn't know he was going to marry her. I didn't know anything about that. It was just somebody I sponsored. Well, I know. <laughs> That's something. I told you this was a family affair. And I have a son who... Our middle child is a, a boy who is uh, living in Buffalo, New York with his wife and uh, daughter. And he told me, and this was from sobriety, that he thought of me when he was a little boy as a big set of teeth. Because if you think you're going to get sober and all that's going to go away in a flash and you're never going to have any of that stuff coming unloose in you, your rage, your inability to deal with life, you're different than I am. 
And I've gotten a chance to love him every way I can. And he is safe and he is happy and he's doing a stand-up job. And he married a lady who uh, suffers from mental illness. And she's doing so much better because of his love. And he's so devoted to her. I, I promise you one thing. You can do anything you want around him, but you ever come at her and it's over. He loves her something terrible. And our one wish for Neil was that he would find somebody who loved him something terrible in return, and she does. And their daughter is fine. Then came our youngest. We have three children, and we lost two through miscarriage. And we had had then four experiences of being pregnant, and my wife said, I think we're done. And I said, Marie, I don't think so. I said, I can't explain this, but I said, there's somebody else coming. And we're not done, and we are not done. I, I can't explain this, but this person has got to be with us. And she gave birth to Peter. And, uh, and uh, you know, people have shared up here about things that have happened and the tragedy of, uh, of the Burns' murder of their daughter. And when Peter was eight years old, he went out on his tricycle, um, just to bang around the neighborhood, and he was raped. He was raped uh, one and a half blocks from our house from a man who showed him a badge and told him it was a policeman. Got him in the car and raped him. And and we didn't do frontier justice in our family. We we didn't say, oh, you know, we're going to kill anybody. We We closed ranks. And we... Closed ranks with our son, and, and we said, we're going to get this handled together. He raped the wrong boy. My son was an incredible witness, and they caught him. He was. They showed my son the mug books, and that man was actually in jail at the time, known sex offender. And the car that he had used, my son positively identified, he had stolen, and he was in jail for car theft. And he got 12 to 25 years in the penitentiary for hurting our son. And I have to tell you about Peter. Peter is a twice-tattooed, very personable young man of 25 years who is studying to be a Roman Catholic priest. He is completing his fourth year out of seven, studying to be a priest. And he is a wonderful man. It snowed in Denver. I'll give you an idea. It snowed in Denver one time. And Peter was looking out the room of uh, the window of one of his classrooms. And he got this inspiration. And he said, we need to build a chapel. So he got his fellow seminarians. And they went out in the front yard of the seminary. And they built a chapel that would accommodate six people. And they named it Our Lady of the Snows Mission. And the newspaper came over and took a picture. And here's Peter carrying the, the blocks of snow so he can build this chapel to Our Lady. Started a rocket club at the seminary. But if you're a musset, you can't just start a rocket club. He makes charts and everything and goes and tells everybody about trajectory. And, and that's the boy who was raped. And that's the boy who was ill-treated, if you will, in life. But that's not about it. This is just a rough planet. If you wanted an easy ride, you came to the wrong planet. We get hurt. We get hurt. I know my time is up. Um, 
I'm just going to hang on to you for a minute. Is that okay? I needed to be here this weekend more than I can tell you. I got on that airplane in Denver and I just, and I hate airplanes. And I just started to relax. I, this is the most normal thing that has happened to me in a long time. Just to come and be in an AA and Al-Anon meeting with you. I cannot express my gratitude to you. I don't know what kind of a talk I gave, but I got an opportunity to tell the truth. And I got an opportunity to say thank you. For saving my life. Tell you about George and then I'll sit down. I picked a little sponsor when I was less than one year sober because he he looked like a pushover. <laughs> God has an enormous sense of humor. And see, I got sober uh, one year before the Vietnam War ended. And I did not fight in Vietnam. And my generation went to war and I missed my war. It took me 28 years to get over the guilt of not fighting in that war. So anyway, I picked George, and uh, and I was uh, in serious need of sobriety. <laughs> and I picked this little guy, right, this pushover. Three tours in Vietnam as a Marine medic. <laughs> and gay. And he had lost a hundred pounds in Weight Watchers. And I would go over to George's place, 6'3", 150 pounds. I looked like an antenna. <laughs> and I would sit in George's apartment and he would teach me how to live by teaching me the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he would give me Weight Watchers ice cream and cookies. <laughs> and he said it was okay because it had vitamins in them. And I got a call from George a week ago. I want to tell you something about the ripple effect. The ripple effect of kindness and love and trying to attend to our lives in God. George has only sponsored one man ever in Alcoholics Anonymous. This very quiet man. This warrior. And that's me and I've been on the circuit for 28 years. George's voice for 28 years all over the United States. And I was telling uh, one of our tapers that a lady came up to me one time and she said, I want to thank you for bringing me back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd never seen her before. And she said, I was 14 years sober. And I heard your tape in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And you brought me back into the fellowship. This is what we're doing. So if you're listening to this talk on tape, I want to tell you that I love you. I want to tell you to be safe. And the way to do that is to work your 12 steps and tell the truth. I love you with all my heart.